Hi, welcome back to Chris Dyer's Creative Friends, the super awesome podcast show where me, your artist friend Chris Dyer, talks to all his awesome artistic friends. Today, I'm in the town of Havana, Florida. I'm here to interview my artistic friend, Carrie Ann Badet, who's a super unique person, amazing painter, uh, super intelligent professor, and I'm so looking forward to our conversation together. And I hope you too. Hi, Carrie Ann. Thanks for having me over your beautiful home. Thank you for coming, Chris. It's so nice to see you. Yeah, it's so nice. I'm, I'm always so honored when, uh, you know, beautiful artists like yourself open up their intimate place to have a great conversation. So where are we? Um, today we are in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. We live a little north of there. I'm a professor at Florida State University, and my husband and I are both professors there, so... Um, this is our sanctuary. We, we do a lot of hard work working for others and doing education, but um, this is where we do our creative work. How is uh, being an artist in, in Florida in general or perhaps just this area? Well, I arrived here 15 years ago and uh, I'm a full professor now. I came last from Philadelphia and I showed a lot in like New York and LA and here, northern Florida is also called the Forgotten Coast. So a little bit, it feels like anything we do with art here is more like DIY or we do it for our immediate community. And so I do show a little bit here. But a lot of the time my art is going all over the United States and all over the world. Mm -hmm. so. But it's a good little refuge in nature yes. seems very calm you got a lake close by it, it looks magical a, a magical place to live thank you yeah i do consider it a magical place to live the lake has alligators in it so it's a dangerous magical place <laughs> uh -huh. um and then you know new orleans is about six hours away and you, you can go there to get a little more magic so. Yeah. Well, we recently were down in Miami. We saw each other during Basel a little bit. What were you doing out there? This art Basel was pretty low key for me. I was mostly uh, part of the programming at Moksha, like yourself, and supporting my friends who were also exhibiting. Amanda Sage was at Satellite Art Fair, and she was doing wonderful work out there. I may be part of that in the future. Uh, because one of their cultural missions is education and outreach to the community. Mm -hmm. And then we were on a panel at Moksha. Um, I did exhibit a few prints down there and I'm promoting my book. So this trip was a lot more about meeting old friends, making new friends and supporting the art community that is always in Miami. And, you know, now you're a Florida resident, so we're neighbors. 
Yay. And I was happy to uh, be down there. I feel I missed out on all the things that you guys were cruising around all the art fairs. And I'm kind of stuck at Moksha just to make sure that my show was running. Right. But, you know, Moksha is the classic of many years. And I think that's where we met, right? Yeah. We, we first met in 2013. And um, it's been interesting over the last decade to observe what is you know, what does it mean that Ray has done in order to cultivate and maintain a psychedelic and visionary art community in Miami? And now we have the next phase there. We have the, the new wave of young artists who are there and some of those are my students. So it was great to, to support them. Yeah, that's awesome. Shout outs to Ray and Mokcha family. We love you. Um, yeah, I think that the year that I met you there, I don't know if it was the one that was on a panel discussion and then I had to present the Moksha symbol. Ah, I believe I was on a panel discussion that year. Uh, yeah. Um, what I remember was I, I'm at that time, I was still coming out of the pop surreal or lowbrow scene. And it was some of my first interaction with the visionary crew. And some of the people that were on that panel were very love and light oriented. And I had just um, my humble message, which is to remind everyone how valuable shadow is and if you came from a rough or difficult upbringing you know i was trying to ground it in a type of realism that bad things do happen and art is also there for you to have it as an outlet and you know sometimes you have to sing the blues uh-huh. and that right. they're just as valuable as talking about positivity right you got to express uh, all emotions as to not bottle them up and to deal with them and hopefully grow from them too um so tell me about your book, uh, Scissors and Tears. It just came out how long ago? Like a month ago? Yeah, I think, you know, the the actual date online was uh, November 22nd. And this is the book. And this is my first offering in this kind. So it was a lot of firsts, a lot of learning, a lot of uh, finding out you know, how to work with a designer, how to work with the pagination, who's going to write, but also like documenting all of the work and then redocumenting all of the work and making sure that you had the best um, images. And then I also chose to write for the book. Mm-hmm. And in addition, Susan Aper, this one of the writers, she's the top writer on female surrealists. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Uh, and now you're on tour trying to share it. Yes. How is selling books in this day and age of internet and phones? Um, so mostly I've done a few book signings and I'm doing those mostly through galleries. Like I did one at Lemieux Gallery and one at Vinvi Gallery. Um, but I'm also a visiting professor. So that means you go and lecture at other universities. I just spoke at Laguna Art College I will be speaking at the New York Academy of Art, and I will also be the visiting professor at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. So cool. So it's it's a way to be a professor and lecture, but also promote the book. That's amazing. Is, um, does have that title of a professor help you get more gigs because it's respected by society? So yeah, being a visiting artist or lecturer, it's service. It's part of your job. It's an exchange. I usually work with students 
and look at their work, give them feedback when I'm a visiting artist, but it's also an opportunity to meet other professors. So yeah, if the one that I'll be doing at LSU in Baton Rouge is part of Surreal Salon. I was the juror last year and I'll be the lecturer this year and I'll be speaking on the history of lowbrow and pop surrealism and that relates to that exhibit, Surreal Salon. Mm, that's so cool, congrats. Um... So the publisher of your book is La Luz de Jesus, which I know as a cool lowbrow gallery in San Francisco, right? But I didn't even oh. know they had a publisher aspect of them. It's in LA. It's in it's Hollywood. In okay. Yes. And Sorry Billy if we're getting it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Shire is the owner of La Luz de Jesus Gallery and Press. And they put out um, books that are generally counterculture. It might be tiki art, but it's also delving into the painters that are in the lowbrow pop surrealism. Um, it's a joy to work with their gallery. He's known as the Peggy Guggenheim of lowbrow, meaning that he's been a powerful advocate and supporter of the arts. He also has really advocated for female artists and that totally, you know, does benefit me. I'm glad he enjoys working with me. And have you been to La Luz de Jesus Gallery? You have to go. It's really a pilgrimage and it's a pilgrimage to kitsch. Historically and philosophically, kitsch was like, that's not art or that's gauche. And I have to say through lowbrow, kitsch is cool. And so his gallery, La Luz de Jesus, is a big pink building. It says wacko on the side. Uh It has lots of art books, but also like, amazing Dalek shower curtains or buttons or cats that eyes light up or Uh um, Native American jewelry. Like it just has a little bit of everything for everyone. It's like the ultimate stocking stuffer. Right. I might've seen pictures of it in an old juxtapose. And um, because back in the day, juxtapose magazine and Ian Beautiful Beside were all about like uh, lowbrow art. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you tell us, the definition, perhaps the official definition of lowbrow art and also your impressions of that movement. So I started showing with the pop surrealists um, around 2005, six and started exhibiting in exhibits through La Luz. Like they have the kitchen ink, kitchen sink show, which has a little bit of everything. Many artists that are well-known got their start in that show. So the history of lowbrow, comes from California. It started with hot rod culture and I'm not from California. So it took me a little bit of doing interviews and asking and reading books to figure out how this all was situated. But after World War II, hot rods became popular. Metal was scarce. And so what young, cool teenagers would do is they would go to the junkyard. So they were getting old car parts and tricking out new vehicles that were very creative and very unique and they were on the street and then they would paint them. So it was a celebration of the streets. I think that segues very well to graffiti art, which is also for the people and on the streets. It's not in a museum. It's not an institution. Uh, It's a great counterpoint to what's happening in New York at the time. New York was not just the Mecca for art, but it was like Europe part two. All the artists of renown who were able to escape Europe went to New York. So that environment became more elitist and more exclusive and less inclusive while what's happening in California is more for the people. It was just 
um, DIY. It was counterculture. Then that dovetails with the rise of rock and roll and psychedelics and keeps proliferating. Um, I'll show you one book here. So this is a book by Kirsten Anderson. This is Pop Surrealism, mm -hmm. The Rise of the Underground Art. And I believe this was printed in 2005. Last Gasp, represent. Yes. They published my coloring books. So, oh, that's awesome. So I visited a few times. And through Kirsten Anderson, there became more of like a codification, but like being lowbrow and being DIY means that everybody does things for themselves. So they're, and it's also new. So there isn't a lot of criticism or critical art discourse. And it's not totally defined yet. It usually takes about 20 years for critical writing to come out, which would be honestly right about now. So I think we'll start seeing more articles really investigating and seeing what this was. Some of the work was lauded and promoted through Juxtapose magazine, which is also very much a part of that scene. And they popularized it. Yes. That's a very popular magazine and that made that movement very popular. I agree. And, you know, Juxtapose magazine has also grown up and now I feel like it represents the whole of the United States. It's not just representing California culture. And it also seems like they've gone more through a street art kind of, you know, they're going with what's hype of the day, which I guess is more street art. Well, and I feel like I saw a real rise of street art through that publication. And I feel like that kind of climaxed to some degree in like 2012, Shepard Fairey became very popular as he should. And then now, if I don't know in the last time you read one, but like, yeah, you're seeing the same kind of articles to some degree. Okay. I mean, so from a different angle, but no, they've really integrated with the New York art scene in that I think they're showing um, the best of art in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, a weird art. They try to show things that are more underrepresented, but it more resembles a grown-up art magazine where I think uh -huh. before knowing, you know, some of the same founders started Thrasher magazine. It was more uh -huh. for kids or it was more for counterculture and outsider. And right. now I think it's more about the establishment. Uh -huh. I remember my first Juxtapose magazine was like 98, 99 and it had Pusshead on the cover and he's an artist for Metallica and sort of like skateboard yeah. and I was like what the fuck's this mag with all this cool yes. art and I, I met so many artists in there so and uh, I really enjoy the lowbrow pop surrealist even though it has a different vibe uh, than I but I like the the weirdness of it so pop surrealism so uh, that's kind of Psychedelic, can you define surrealism? What's the difference between surrealism and pop surrealism? Like you're just throwing like, uh, you know, Charlie Brown in the mix or... And it's something I've had to kind of discover for myself because I'll give an example. I do think there's now a Wikipedia page just for pop surrealism, but for a long time, there was just the lowbrow page and they just categorized it as a subset of lowbrow, which it is. Um, there are exhibitions. This one was the juxtaposed factor. So reflecting on juxtaposed magazine, this is retinal delights. It was at the Laguna mm -hmm. art museum. And just to get a date on that, that was 2008. So, um, what is surrealism? Surrealism came out of Dada. That's more like the twenties, thirties, forties. Dali came out of that. Um, also, you know, we have a great Dali museum here in Florida. So 
I felt very comfortable coming to Florida because surrealism wasn't like a bad word mm -hmm. like it had been when I was in graduate school. Um, pop, pop's coming out of um, Klaus Oldenburg, Andy Warhol, the factory, um, kind of the commodification of art and making rapid images that are mass available. So what is pop's realism? And, you know, that, that word is somewhat defined by Kirsten Anderson in her book, but it came through, I think the quintessential pop surrealist is Mark Ryden. Mm -hmm. And there were elements there that very heavily relied on kitsch, but in a good way. And so I would say some of the value of kitsch is um, nostalgia. Nostalgia in California comes from toys, collectibles, cartoons, Hanna-Barbera, Disney. Um, it comes from tattoo culture. It, but the way that representational art had been marginalized in the United States with the support and rise of abstract expressionism and non-objective art was representational art itself became kitsch. So even making work that was doll-like, toy-like, candy-like, but also had representational figures was were some of the hallmarks of this work. And it made it enjoyable because what's happening simultaneous to the rise of pop surrealism is art become, you know, images are on the internet. Images are going worldwide. Mm -hmm. So while there had been this incredible gatekeeping in New York, now you have the democratization of art for everyone and people can like whatever they like. And it turns out people really do like representational figures, not to the exclusion of other art, but it's, it's not, um, it, it became more, it became more popular again. So part of pop surrealism is I think populist and popular mm -hmm. and available for everyone mm -hmm. as it, you know, it also reflects in how they sell things. Um, Art wasn't just something with a huge price tag. This is also a scene that would have memorabilia or uh, merch. So you might be able to buy a pin for a dollar or two, or you might be able to buy an art object or a collectible for $20, or you might be able to buy prints. So it was a really different way of thinking about art. And it, it was all new to me. So I really looked at all of this as an academic and a researcher investigating what is California culture uh, being in that gallery didn't mean I was from California. It just meant that they appreciated my technique and they liked what I was making. They appreciated my narrative. But even I initially, like in 2008, 9, 10, I was like, how did I end up in something that came from hot rod culture? I have mm -hmm. no location, no relationship to this. Right. But it became a really interesting adventure uh -huh. because there's something of real value there that could only come out of California in the you know, the 20th century and now in the 21st century. Right. Well, labels and categories of art are kind of limiting to the uniqueness of each person, but it's True. nice to find a, a platform. Do you consider yourself a pop surrealist or are you just Carrie Ann, you know, doing her, her thing? I know I'm a, I've, I have observed myself being a very interstitial person. I've moved through several art movements. Interstitial is like, uh, if you have a warp and a weft, it's in between the interstices. It's at the intersection. Okay. It's being liminal. The bridge. I'm a bridge. Yeah, thank Take you. Take it to the bridge. <laughs> so, um, for example, I went to the Florence Academy. That's a representational atelier school. I don't consider myself necessarily merely a representational artist. I also studied with 
um, art conservators at the University of Delaware. They are one of the only programs in the United States that have uh, an undergraduate and graduate and uh, I believe PhD level art conservation in the nation where you're working on hand skills. But I'm not that alone. I just learned, you know, for example, like how does a 17th century French painting, what color is the ground? What's the palette? How do you build that up? Um, what would be the processes for a 16th century Italian painting? What would be the processes for a 17th century Dutch old master painting? And I'm really interested in approaches and how that affects the final look of the image. What did we get from egg tempera? What happened in the transition between egg tempera and oil? I'm interested in those intersections. Super technical. Yeah, I love the technique. And um, that's that's something I can geek out on. Uh-huh. And then, yeah, I was sort of swept up into the lowbrow and considered myself very lucky. Uh, I was on John Vienna Art's uh, first website that I think, honestly, uh, Instagram owes something to John Vienna Art. I think that format he was doing first, it was very effective. And he was a big advocate for counterculture and helping like H.R. Giger and Alex the Gray dark side and the dark sure. side. Yeah. But also the technical side uh-huh. all get, um, back when visionary promoted. art had to be impeccably like technical and precise. Um, so if you're linked to this pop surrealism or any kind of surrealism, that seems to be either a branch of visionary art or visionary art's a parallel Well, branch. I think now they just go back and forth. I think there's right. people, again, that are liminal and you can show with different aspects. I, around 2012, I became more interested in what the visionary people were doing. It seemed to be spiritual and that I had some alignment with. And I was like, well, uh, what, what makes visionary art? So just as much as I was trying to investigate what was lowbrow and pop surreal, I'm like, what is visionary? What's your and, definition? Um, I, I'll just, for one second, yeah. I'll just say, yeah. So in 2004, five, six, I was trying to find out where all these amazing technical painters were coming from. And I noticed that all of them had studied in some way with someone who had studied with Ernst Fuchs. So being one of the Viennese fantastic realists, I realized there was some element of technique that had been lost in the 20th century that he was promoting and it was disseminated through all of these artists. So I, my personal definition of visionary art is um, something that exists in here. You know, who's painting out of their imagination, who's painting from their mind's eye. Mm-hmm. And some degree I have an element of that but some of my work also exists in this world so it's um I work from collage and I cut things up the way that it works for me is whatever I'm seeing in my mind's eye I then go and take collage material and I make a like Frankenstein version of it and then I repaint that collage of the imagery right and why because in graduate school my professors were older um, representational uh, and abstract artists. And they would say, where do your ideas come from? And I would say, visions. And they would say, no, they don't. (laughs) And then the next interview, they would say, where do your ideas come from? And I would say, visions. You know, I saw it in my mind. They're like, no, it doesn't. And so I had to come up, 
you know, to go through the academic system, I had to come up with another way to speak about art and to talk about where the ideas came from that was not as intuitive. So I I worked more with researching ideas. It didn't mean I was less intuitive. It meant I had to build a whole new level of vocabulary and an approach that had more sophistication or more complexity. It's so weird to me. I also went to university. It almost seems like they're just kind of like intellectualizing something that's not from the intellect. That's just like a subconscious, flowing intuition made into something visual. But do I even have to know where it comes from? Can it just be? I don't know. I think art now has more opportunities for everything to exist. I mean, I think, again, through the democratization of art and the access of everything on the internet. I think there's more room for everyone to be everything, but anyone who goes to get a master's degree has to, you're vetted, you're assessed, you're in critique constantly. And so it just takes a different, it gives, gives you a different level of responsibility and accountability. So, you know, we write 20 page theses on all of the ideas with the footnotes and I have at times wondered what I would be like if I hadn't gone because I've met all these wonderful visionary artists who went, hey, you know, school's not for me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's just not the path I took. I didn't know there was another path. I thought this was what I needed to do and what I had to do. And sometimes I feel like there's a cage or a constraint at the same time. I like elements of my cage. <laughs> so, right. Well, you I can... develop something and it has merit, but it's it's fun to like escape your cage. Right. Well, you so. you're playing a specific video game, the video game of university and talking about art and the different movements and how they influence each other and where does an artist get inspiration and what the flavor culturally speaking. Once again, all these labels and perhaps cages or boxes that are kind of like necessary for us to know a little bit of you know who we are and what we're trying to say and there'll be plenty of uh, artists who are just expressing for the sake of expressing but we also need those who are a little bit more mental so we can present it to society and be like hey this is what we're doing there's actually something very important at this time because it's very in relationship to how we're moving in history and evolving as humanity it's a reflection of the spiritual direction we should go to if we want to save ourselves as humanity uh but it's not the something that's very talked to in mainstream society uh do you think visionary art or the ideals of spiritual art in the evolution of humanity is slowly creeping into mainstream society or something that people like yourself scholars have still have to explain to the gatekeepers well we're in a transition in history, I think, you know, the 20th century had the rise of the art critic. The critic was incredibly important. They were someone who was a tastemaker and they said, you know, this is art and this is not art. I think we saw to some degree the denigration of the critic. At the same time, I see the need for people who are educated to speak and, and represent art and help be that bridge to other people. So I do think it has value. Um, we'll see where that goes next. It's, it's just interesting to, you know, we used to see art in brick and mortar locations and go there in person. Seeing art in person was really valuable. Um, 
I think that was what was interesting about the entheogenic or psychedelic contemporary art movement that has some intersections with visionary is that the art was being brought to festivals. So hundreds of thousands of people around the world, if not millions, are seeing art in person. Um, however, Boom last year only showed, I hear, only showed digital art. And so then is that now going to be a trend that we're going to move away from seeing art in that location? Uh, taking it back to teaching, I still do consider my role as a teacher to be someone who helps unlock human potential, helps people with their creativity, helps them unlock their potential in the way that they have a voice, they have a calling, and it's not my place to say what kind of artist they'll be. It's just to help them breathe and push and become the artist they want to become. Some of my students do turn out to be visionary artists, and that's exciting because uh, we have some similar networks and shared friends at this point. At the same time, my hope is that my students become the future of the entire art world, and we're all helping each other and friendly and supportive. And we're not only artists and teachers, because if you're a teacher, um, you realize you have to teach people what art is, but they become ambassadors for what is consciousness, what is creativity, what is human potential that could helpfully transform society. It's important that all of us realize and are grounded in our expression, whatever that may be. It doesn't have to just be painting, mm -hmm. but if we don't have that creative outlet, you know, human beings also create war and garbage and can destroy this place. I think it's only through a greater level of creativity and design that we can hopefully save ourselves and this world. And so it's not just seeing that I'm making discrete painters, but like art plus everything, mm -hmm. level of intent and consciousness and design plus everything. How can we take this and make a more beautiful world? Right. And being clear of our intention and why we're making art and what are we trying to say is super important in order to deliver something more potent and to be able to talk about it too. I think like the artist has to both like paint beautifully, but at some points they're going to be like, hey, what's your art about? And we got to have like the ability to express ourselves through our mouths as well. So let me talk, let me let you talk a little bit more about your personal work. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions here and then you can roll. Uh, your art seems to be uh, kind of like a paint, paintings, but that come from the influence of collage. There's a lot of this um, masks of eyes that go over your figures. I, I want you to let, let me know what that's about. It also seems to have a little bit of a somber kind of vibe. Uh, which is, you know, it's not bad, but why does it have like uh, that vibe? And what in, what in general are you trying to say or make your audience feel through your work? I know there's a lot of questions in one, but I just want to like throw it all there and then you can just <laughs> roll with it. Um, to tie back to the prior conversation, I would say as an artist, our first language is visual. Mm -hmm. So yeah, our second language then might be you know, English. And so writing and speaking about art it didn't come naturally to me at all. A lot of this is practice and realizing that I have a skill of being charismatic and inspirational. And that's something that I try to imbue other 
students with, other people with. So that said, the paintings wish to speak. The paintings usually have lots and lots and lots of ideas in them. When I was in graduate school, I was told that painting couldn't do what I wanted it to do. They said, if you want your paintings to mean all of that, you need to write books or make movies. But paintings can't mean all of these things. So when we're painting a painting now, it's one image. There's all these movies and, you know, digital work that we could be doing, time-based work. So for me, I just wanted to pack as much meaning and significance into one image. Mm -hmm. And collage seemed to be a way to do that. And I call that a citation style. So I'm quoting and I'm not trying to make magical realism because I'm trying to say this came from another place mm -hmm. and I'm trying to source it back to that location. I'm also trying to be incredibly mindful about copyright because mm -hmm. we don't want to bite on another artist style who's living. However, you know, um, we have to steal responsibly as artists and this is called appropriation art. So steal from one person, shame on you. But if you steal from many, then that's a level of synthesization that belongs to artists where you can make new statements out of existing things. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's December right now. Uh, you might be familiar with an advent calendar. I kind of wanted that same effect where you could open doors through mm -hmm. the paintings that would link up to other locations and therefore have a kind of hyper contextuality and textuality, like a meta narrative that would go into the work. And with that, then it's like, can will it work? It's like you're Dr. Frankenstein and you're hoping your monster will walk and talk and speak and be your child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a grand experimentation. Am I failing gloriously at it? Or am I, am I, is it working? Is it doing it? I don't know. But it's something that you're constantly in that chase and that pursuit to be able to have your work do something unique that is truly your voice. Well, so. I like your paintings. Thank uh, you. They, they make me <laughs> uh, wonder uh, because your vibe and my vibe is different. That's fine. So like me, when I look at, at your world, I'm like, not, not that I'm not resonating because we all do have uh, different emotions, but uh, it's, it's a different place. I'm an alien in your world, as you might be an alien in my world. I hope to be an alien in your world. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it does have a, a, a straight effect. So what about the masks? Are, are these, are these uh, characters in your paintings trying to hide something or they're like doubled in vision when it comes so, to that? Like that's, that's on the cover of the book. This is from a painting. So that's one of the eyes or I'll pull from another one that has the mask for reference. Let's see. Are they masks or they're just... Uh... Well, it depends. So... Um, how this came about, again, graduate school is an incubator. It's a crucible. It's an intense time period, and it can feel very abusive. I, I, I will be the first to say education, when it's plugged in wrong, is like incarceration. It's a very intense and sometimes um, not pleasant experience. So um, yet I had like a breakdown that was simultaneous or indistinguishable from the breakthrough. And I've always tried to be very serious about my work. So it wasn't very playful. And then I had this moment of play. It had occurred at the refrigerator door. I had some magnets that I moved over a photograph on the fridge. And when the eyes went over the 
photo, something happened. Number one, I laughed out loud, like something playful and joyful happened. Mm -hmm. And then also there was this moment of like, aha, like something, something has occurred. And to be a representational or a realist painter, you're stuck with reality. And I've never really been that interested in reality. I'm interested in the places we can go in our mind. At the same time, my mind was a bit dark and a bit haunted. And that was because of experiences I had had that by wearing these eyes, I felt like I could travel into myth. I could travel into narrative. I could become a bunch of other people. I could also maybe speak about emotions that I wouldn't otherwise be able to say. So for a while I used the eyes and then you, it's like you paint yourself in a corner. It's like, now, now what do you paint without the eyes? So it was a challenge to stop doing something that becomes a trope in your work, but then it's an entrapment because if you quit, then are you still you? Will you be recognizable? And I have learned by talking to galleries, like what they're looking for when they want to have a selling artist is they want to have someone whose very DNA is in the work that's unmistakable, that it could only be them that is painting this work. Mm -hmm. And because I paint from ideas and I feel like I'm always painting in a different direction, I've been nervous at certain points in my career. Like, do I paint like a really big group show? Like, am I painting like a bunch of other people? But the reality is, is that I see the map. I know that I have paintings that over the arc of my life, they are their own series and they occur over time. And I see how they germinate and develop and alter. And in any one given year, they don't all look the same. It's more like I'm making these um, arcs of narratives that go further out. So I feel like if I get another 20 years to paint, I feel like it will all make sense. Yeah. Well, I think that's super healthy, you know, to, to just take one path over and over will be boring and to try new things in it. They don't work so hard, at least you're trying and you might hit a good note. It's like, Ooh, I'm going to bring this note in. Right. Oh, that one where it was bringing this ingredient in also. So I think that's super healthy way to go about it as an artist. Um, so what about the mood? The uh, mood. You don't seem like a <laughs> angry, depressed person to me. Uh, not that I'm saying your art's angry or depressed, but once again, there's like a like a darker, <laughs> more som somber mood to yeah. it, to the general body of work that you present. I think that what I have learned, some of my skill or my value is that I am a cathartic artist. The first definition of catharsis is to share emotion. The second level of catharsis, however, is something that makes you defecate. So I have also tried to be conscientious about what kind of shit I'm sharing. Because you know? <laughs> at one time I feel like my work was like being a, like a blues singer. You're just singing your so song of sorrow. And then honestly, through encountering Amanda Sage and her painting Anya Soramai, which is this uh -huh. fantastic work where there's the lifting of the skirt. Yeah. In 2011, she went from Tory to my classroom and brought this painting. This was right at the Occupy movement. Uh, and this painting became a powerful symbol in the Occupy movement. This moment of a woman lifting her skirt arrests an army in its tracks or it stops the advance. And I tried to take that on for myself. Like how many more songs do I need to sing about my own sorrow? And so then I started working on the shadow of the world as opposed to such a personal position. And there's plenty of shadow 
in the world that needs considered and addressed. And I think only in the last year did I bring it back. And I was like, no, I've accumulated again enough of my own sorrow and difficulty that I need to put it into the work again. It's almost like a shamanic purge. Yes. <laughs> and it, it resonates with people who feel that, you know, it's not for everyone, but it's authentically what I do. So why is the darker side of, of anything of art, of uh, spiritual art necessary in the evolution of any human being like when we look at a painting that per probably reflects a, a darker aspect how does that help the individual reflecting through it well to speak about shadow specifically i think the shadow was most well known through carl jung in the 20th century and he was an advocate for the shadow and a, and a, a spelunker of shadow and realized that really if you want to attain great heights you also have to have the roots and you also have to be familiar with your own darkness and that there must be, I think, an integration in your trunk of both. Um, yet in the ancient Egyptians, there were five parts of the soul, the ba, the ka, the ib, the shut, and the ren. The shut is your shadow. So this is also ancient. It's not just like contemporary um, perceptions. Yes. So the shadow is something that is part of us. It is the part we repress. So as we have our own personality and we could have an incredibly shiny, bright personality, but really you have to be careful. The more brightly someone shines, they're probably repressing and suppressing so much of their own instincts and their own desires and their own, uh, you know, those things that others would find undesirable in order to project light that they, that's its own form of disintegration and that shadow is growing. So, I might be a little darker, but is that not a little more real or substantive? One of the analogies is you want enough shadow that you don't float away like a cloud, mm -hmm. but not so much shadow that you sink your own boat. Yeah, that's beautiful. So just enough to stay level. Yeah. And that's a challenge. So for example, being a university professor can seem like you're at war all the time or you know, I would love to come up with better gardening analogies that we just have some really tough weeds right now, or um, I don't know, this isn't the right kind of soil we need, but it, it's, it's an incredibly dynamic, difficult job. And um, the arts need support and education at every level. So it's a noble fight, but certainly I can generate a lot of you know, I don't think I have as much sorrow as I did growing up. You know, um, I think I now get it a lot just from this interaction in the world. And for example, during COVID trauma came up. A lot of people, I think when the world stopped, we, uh, many of us dealt with much of our trauma. It was the one moment when we were all still and we had to really deal with ourselves. And very sensitive people being just very sensitive can be traumatic. Mm -hmm. So is it truly trauma or is it just being sensitive? And as we are artists, most of us are very sensitive. Um, my new analogy for this is that artists are like being the whiskers on a cat. We're the antennae. We're this incredibly fine filament that's filtering our ancestral inheritance, 
the political terrain of this world, our bodies, just everything about this world can be really intense if you're an artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting how each of us has to find where we overcome and then transmute that into our work and at what level we share that. Well, thank you for doing your inner work and reflecting it so honestly to your viewers. That's thank super you. important. And every single part of the conversation helps us figure out what the fuck we are and what we should do to keep on going in a harmonious, balanced way, hopefully. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your technique, because I know you really love technique. Can you tell me a little bit about how you go with your paintings? I know you paint with oils, I believe. I do paint with oil. I have painted with egg tempera. I think the big breakthrough in my personal work happened after having conversations with many of the artists that learned the Mish technique. But I also was simultaneously or just coming from working with um, the School of Art Conservators. So, and that was under specifically Hilton Brown. We worked in egg tempera. I did a like reconstruction from the ground up of a Giovanni Bellini. He was one of those transitional artists like Da Vinci or Van Eyck that would have started as young men working in egg tempera and then translating their work into oil. So you got a little bit of the best of both. The secret for me was that if you work on a chalk gesso, uh, a very porous, very smooth surface, you could do an ink underpainting and get all of this detail, these selvages, these edges for my collage could translate more easily. If you just work with oil paint, oil paint is very free, very messy, very unctuous. And I just couldn't get the level of detail I wanted, even though I had done a reconstruction of it, for example, like a Vermeer. And Vermeer has so much virtue, so much beauty, so much luminosity, but I was seeking this edge, this edge that you get in the Northern Renaissance, like Mimling. And so it was just this aha moment of like, okay, you need that ink underpainting. Black and, it, and white? Yeah. You I mean, you can do it in brown. You can do it in black and white. And then from there, you put an imprimatura on in oil and it, you just start working it up in oil with multiple layers. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, all of this is based off what people think art is. I call it, you know, an aesthetic, um, preference or um it's also a prejudice sometimes you're like that's art and that's not art i i had a book in our home i remember being five and it was on the impressionist and i was like that's not art nobody told me that i mean my parents liked that they bought the book uh -huh. but i was like that's not the art that i wanted yeah so i always wanted this level of realism and then you know you still don't realize that like photography replaced a lot of realism so what are you going to do with the real what are you going to do with the techniques so i think i've always been interested in the world of the mind the world of the imagination and then trying to challenge myself with technique to render that so you, someone else could see what i see in my mind's eye right um <clears throat> i'm having a difficult time with uh anybody saying that something wouldn't be art perhaps it's art they don't like Perhaps they consider it bad art, but still, it seems to me like everything I see, it's either nature or it's art. Man-made art, not man-made, God's art. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, I guess that's uh, depending on the observer, right? 
Because I came through academia, so much of what we perceive as art comes through the lens of art history. The foundation of art history is connoisseurship, but it is also saying that there, there's better art, you know, and, and what is the better art for that time? So there are tastemakers and the pendulum goes back and forth. So it's very interesting because we'll go through a period where, you know, something is forgotten or left behind, and then we go all the way to the other side. So for example, I was nominated for a Joan Mitchell this year, and I'm, I, I do fit into the surreal or representational category to some degree. And the majority of the artists that won that award this year were abstract expressionists, which I found very surprising. So it, it's interesting how we will, there are those who will champion the underdog Mm -hmm. And fashion will constantly be moving the mark. So I, I think we all just have to paint for who we are and what we believe and hopefully intersect with people who find our work of value. Right. Uh, it's interesting how art goes, goes in movements and fads and what's popular. And then uh, art movement that might have touched the hearts of me and all of a sudden is not important anymore. That I understand because it's like, you know, fashion or... Mm -hmm the style of anything, skateboard graphics or, yeah. you know, but at the same time, I think like art that's powerful will touch anybody at any point, regardless of what's popular. I have to hope so. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cause uh, sometimes we want to do what's not popular. Right. Uh, I wouldn't say visionary art is popular yet. Maybe it's popular with a, a small demographic of, people who go to hippie festivals, but it's really a small blip in the bigger art world. It's almost not at all in museums. It's not really even talked about in any discussion. Like uh, you, one of the few professors, university people, he even knows about it, talks about it, values it, but, you know, or even tries to, you know, I, I don't know, sponsor it, but, you know, value it. One of the things I did in 2011, I curated a show called Cute and Creepy because I realized lowbrow pop surrealism didn't have many exhibitions outside of California, hardly any at that time. I had started trying to curate it in 2007-8 when it really was more underground. By 2011, many of these artists were already popular. The show is incredibly successful because I used the new tools, I used the internet, and I did a lot of advertising and made a great catalog. and. Uh, 11,000 people came to our museum here in Florida, uh, at Florida State University, which was three times more had ever attended that museum in one month. So I hit it. Like, mm -hmm. But it's like being good, like beginner's luck. Mm -hmm. I went the next show. I was like, all right, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to make the best proposal and I'm going to make a visionary art exhibition. Mm -hmm. One of the issues that I encountered was visionary art is global. It's not localized to just the United States. And I felt like if I was going to do the show, I needed to show it internationally. Mm. I didn't have the shipping for it. Mm. I didn't have the budget. When right. I looked at that time, 2011-12, at who the visionary artists were, I really couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't feel as strong about the show I would curate out of American visionary artists. So I think it's interesting in that there's, a great international capacity, a global capacity. And there's great dialogue between cultures in that way. 
And festival culture is also international. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm seeing that festival culture is very DIY. They do it themselves. They're not interested in the establishment. They didn't go to art school, many of them. They, they didn't value the degree. So like, why should they care about validation? Right. So is that partially why that hasn't happened to that degree? I guess uh, notable shows, The Grays showed at Mesa Contemporary with Amanda Sage last year. Mesa Contemporary, Tiffany Farrell, the amazing curator there, has championed lowbrow and counterculture. She's, um, you know, I attended an event with her just at Art Basel that was for Ron English. Mm-hmm. So she, she's very cool. Yeah. But she's one of the only curators I know that consistently supports that type of artwork. Um, so you might look at that. I think that would be potentially a good I was in that match. show, uh, but I've never met them. They just, I just sent my art and they sent it back. And I, that's probably one of the few museum yeah. shows for visionary art. I'm yeah. in a lot more street art shows when it comes right. to museums. Okay. Because that's getting more attention and valued. While visionary art is still very underground. And See, the other one I would recommend for you is Surreal Salon. So every year they have a different curator, or a, I'm sorry, a different juror. And they're majoritively coming out of the lowbrow scene. And I think that could be a great avenue. The winner of that exhibit gets a feature in Juxtapose Where magazine. That's in Baton Rouge. And that's been going on for 15 years. And that's another way to have surrealism or counterculture viewed it's just unusual it's in the center of the united states it's in louisiana but somehow from the mardi gras festival kind of vibe they they really have a love of surrealism and right there in the center of the united states super cool i'll check it out how is being a professor what what trials what do you have to learn in order to this is like a title or, or you've been around long enough. I myself was kind of researching, like, what does it take to be a professor? I only know you and Ben Ridgway when it comes to that. Is and Ben a professor? He just got his professor. I got to reach out to Ben. That's so cool. Yeah, That's great. totally. Okay. I'm trying to convince him to get on the show and he's nervous because, you know, it's, he's in that world. And, and, and I commend I'll you reach for, out to ben. for okay. having my, this conversation <laughs> with me. Um, how is it being, uh, well, first of all, what did you do to become a professor? What do you teach in school? What's the vibe of being this weirdo artist, but also in a very structured, uh, place that you work? It has a real structure. Well, um, I'll start it this way. So in 2018, there was a book by Derezowitz called The Death of the Artist. I recommend this book to any contemporary artist, but not for the faint of heart. If you suffer from depression, you might want to be careful with this, but it's <laughs> what's impacting all levels of the, the arts. Book comes with a gun. <laughs> it, yeah, it comes, it comes with some cyanide maybe, but no. Um, yeah, it's showing how um, art is impacted, like theater and writing and music and the visual arts because of corporations. So it's harder and harder to become an artist. At the same time, if we don't study what's potentially um, eating us or defeating us, how will we ever supersede it or grow beyond it? So I'm interested in hitting those things head on. Um, in that book, I, he said one of the only ways to be an artist in the United States is to become a professor. And it was great validation for me because that was what I had decided when I was 19. 
Mm. I was six years old sitting in my grandmother's dining room and she was very seriously having a conversation with me, looking at this drawing that I will one day inherit. My great-great-grandmother was in the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 and she won first prize in her division. She said, your great-grandmother won this huge prize at the Chicago World's Fair and she could not figure out how to be an artist. How will you survive? Mm. So I was already having these conversations. At six years old. But now it's, you know, it's out. Like it made me much more conscientious. And I was always trying to figure out how to monetize art, selling pictures of Garfield on the playground at age eight, you know, wow. 25 cents. Um, <laughs> or, but I had many apprenticeships and internships. I was a jeweler's apprentice. I looked at going into art therapy. I looked at all these other fields. I even, because we, I grew up near the Air Force Academy. I'm like, do I go in the military to become an artist? Because I knew a few military artists. Um, do I become a doctor so I have enough money so that then I will be a painter, but then I would be a hobbyist. Like, how do I, how do I survive? And the big end was I should just make art. Like all of these paths are distinctly, uniquely challenging and difficult and I mostly interacted with professors and I would ask them about their experience and all of them said I would never make it. And I was also an athlete. So to me, I was somebody who liked to run up hills. I think if you like running up hills and ice skates, being a professor is for you. It's not easy. You have to be, I mean, I am sensitive, but you have to be resilient. And part of that is I went to the Art Institute of Chicago. At, at that time, it was a pass-fail school. I demanded all of my grades because I needed the transcript. I called it rich kid daycare at the time because they didn't take attendance and they didn't have grades. And I realized that every class was $300 a class. I was going to have to be bleeding out of my eyes not to show up. Mm. So I went to every class and I worked super hard. I was a little, um, aggravated by school always. I don't, I didn't have a lot of great education. I had some amazing middle school teachers and a couple of good high school teachers. Mostly I was disappointed by school. So it's a little strange too, if someone didn't really enjoy it. Like I hated high school. I got my high school air teacher fired. I helped rewrite curriculum when he was removed. Mm. So I, it's, it's a, it's almost, it's like being a warrior in the system mm who has this very high ideal for what art and education should be and the value of the student. So in a way I'm an aberration, <laughs> not, I'm not really, um, I don't think I was the best student, but I wanted the most, mm. I was so dissatisfied. And so I do my very best to hold myself up to my own standards. I also fail frequently. Um, the terrain is constantly changing. I got my master's from University of Delaware, and then you're an adjunct. Academia is a feudal, like, um, like almost medieval kind of system where it's all hierarchical mm. and it's based off adjuncts. So I was an adjunct for four years, which means you make no money hardly. Uh, I was teaching up to 11 classes a year and teaching between three states. I remember chewing the inside of my cheek to stay awake because I was going to get hit by a semi, like just barely being able to um, feed and house myself. And I never slept. I painted all night. Mm. And then I interviewed nonstop all over the country to get the job. 
And I remember arriving here and many people who applied for that job, you get stared down like, who the hell are you? Mm-hmm. And it's like, to me, I felt like I had done a couple of duties in Nam, and I was not Coast Guard. It's something where you survive a lot of difficulty. And then once you get in, it's another system of rank. So you start as an assistant and through exhibiting and getting letters and, um, you know, they want you to show nationally and then they encourage you to show internationally. I became an associate professor and then I'm now at the full rank of full professor. Mm -hmm. And that means you have many more responsibilities and you're still supposed to be showing it in an even higher level of professional acumen. So I believe in this, I, I have this information more so based off of like, in order to go through each level of being vetted, you have outside reviewers review all of your materials and your credentials. And for example, what no other artist who I'm friends with does is like, I have to write reports on the validity of the locations that I've shown. So I would have to say, like I showed at the Mesa Contemporary and 200,000 people attended, you know, that museum a year and that they were an accredited museum and how many people came to my show uh-huh. and why is this of value and is it a regional or a national or an international venue? Mm-hmm. And is, is it really up to the level of our preeminence? Wow. So, it, it all sounds so judgmental. Uh, it is a lot of scrutiny. But at the same time, we do a lot of service. This is, this is being a, a teacher is service. It's got a purpose. <laughs> yeah. So I have to believe ultimately in the value of higher education, of critical thinking, mm-hmm. and that I am creating young professionals that go into the top of the art world. Some of our students have become incredibly successful artists, and some of them are our friends. So, <laughs> so you went through all that hard work to become a great teacher and professor is it now that you've achieved your goal is it fun is it repetitive and, 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 and maybe boring at times or is it exciting do you get the chance to like expand on what you teach on every year and keep it growing or is it kind of like you got to keep it in certain parameters because it's for a university like how much freedom do you have on what you teach and how much it changes throughout the years to keep it interesting for yourself even? They're all great questions. It's not completely easy for me to say yet. So I've been 15 years at this institution. I intend on staying for the last six years. I have been the program director for the BFA. The BFA are, you know, we have a program of 400 students and the BFA are the studio artists. They take more classes in studio art. They have more supervision by my peers who are professional artists and we're grooming them for becoming the future of the art world. And I've poured my heart and soul into that program. Um, there are always challenges and difficulties because, um, I think of the university like a sleeping Leviathan and even it is constantly becoming unconscious and waking up and doing things like saying, ah, what are the humanities and what are the humanities for? And you'd be to me, the first time I saw like these kind of questions come out, I was like, don't you know, (laughs) you have humanities in you, you know, like this is a whole, this is English and music and art. These have always been here. As long as there's been universities, we've had these. Why, why would you not know what you are? 
but no, like any human, you always have to have these checks and balances. And you also have to be okay with asking questions. And I think one of the important questions I saw happen from that was, you know, the humanities are here to humanize humanity. Hmm. And that is interesting because that also means we're not necessarily born human, that we must become human and that we must study and resolve and think about what we are and what our culture is. And that, you know, is in opposition. I don't like that, but we should all be one whole um, discipline that's integrated and all valued. But STEM, the sciences, have been valued and they solve things. And they know what they're doing. They're trying to solve cancer. They're trying to solve, you know, what's in between matter or between stars. They're solving things. The humanities don't solve anything. They just keep revisiting and masticating and contemplating what the human experience is. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I think the most, the highest potential here is consciousness or self-awareness or level of intent. So I might call it painting, but sometimes we give birth to a body of work or a painting. And sometimes we just give birth to the individual. So what you're saying, if I can understand correctly, is that you're not even teaching painting, you're teaching humanities, which is a reflection of who is, what is humanity in general. But you said that that's not a conversation that's evolving, that it's kind of like defined and we're just revisiting the old. I, you know, I'm well, sure you would disagree expands. also. I think it's... it expands. And I think, I think it's interesting that even as an institution, I mean, as much as you and I have sought, I believe we share in the mission of being conscious, but how often are we really conscious? You know, you go, I feel like I have been a ghost at many times of my life or invalid or invalid or not present because of sickness, because of stress, because of difficulty. And then there'll be this moment where you fully feel yourself inside of your meat suit and you are a consciousness here. And you're like, ah, oh, I'm back. This is the moment. I will stay in this moment. Mm -hmm. And then you get blown out again. Mm -hmm. And you don't know how long it'll be before you get back. I see the university being a reflection in its enormity of being like a almost like a superhuman experience of all of these collective minds and collective students all fighting at that same and, and awakening at that same level to attain a type of consciousness and i have i believe during my time period there even seen it lose consciousness forget who it is not understand why it's functioning and then come back into focus mm. that's a part of the mission of a president or a dean or a unit of teachers that has to all stay present and be focusing. But at the same time, I've had to realize that we are not our buildings. Education is the transmission between individuals, between the teacher and the student and the student and the teacher and between the other students. So it becomes a community that's driven together for the hope and the sake of learning, for education, for thinking, You know, um, one of the things I try to help my students discover is how to ask better questions and to stay in that level of inquiry. To me, that's like Tai Chi or any kind of martial art. Like, can you ask a more beautiful question, a more necessary question? And can you make work that is driven by inquiry? Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
Well, I'm certainly very uh, intellectually stimulated right now. I feel like I gotta stay sharp <laughs> and present and every word to not appear foolish in comparison. Uh, but uh, talking about your students, we're both friends with uh, Stella Struyoska, uh, episode 40, 42 of the show. Did yeah. I say her name right? Struzoska. Struzoska. Man, I always almost get like a stroke every time I say her name. <laughs> um, how was being her teacher? Because she's, uh, you know, well known in the, in the, in the, as one of the new painters of the visionary art scene in North America. And, you know, she's our friend and stuff. How was her as a student? Stella is one of my favorite humans. And part of Stella's story was one of redemption. And so... Um, in order to have redemption, someone has to be somewhat lost. And then I was present as Stella became Stella. So I think it's not merely um, getting access to all of these many, many students, these wonderful human beings. I'm so excited to meet my students. But for her specifically, she has an incredible talent and superseded incredible difficulties and incredible odds in order to make beautiful work. And it's just been very exciting to see her find her path and her voice and continue to do it and to be able to make a living doing it. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing that makes me want to continue to teach and continue to want to be present. I tell my students, you can graduate FSU, but you don't have to graduate me. And so it's just very rewarding to be present and keep seeing her do incredible work. Sometimes she'll tell me the ideas for her painting and I have to make myself be quiet because I'm like, that will never work. That's insane. That's, that's, that's going to be too hard to paint or no one will understand. And then she makes this incredible viral painting about ayahuasca and Trump and, um, Putin and these world leaders that we know to be negative, Mm -hmm. um, transcending, yeah, doing the work and transcending themselves by taking medicine. And I, it's, it's a privilege and it's an honor and it's very inspirational. And that's why as much as I had a difficult time in school and had really high expectations, I've learned more from my students than I ever learned from any one teacher. Mm-hmm. So in that way, I'm always in class and you have to be very humble and then, you know, I'm at their service. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you for the work that you do to empower these students. Um, in, in this description of what you do for your students, like I imagine in university, perhaps, uh, you know, they teach you how to paint and probably, you know, art history and what this all means. But is, is there like also classes on like, this is how you make a living, this is how you, or is that not so incorporated in the system? Because that's a very needed, uh, I teach it in my workshop, so you know, I teach what I know, which is, you know, basic. (laughs) And I noticed Allison is teaching a lot more about this. Allison Gray has some wonderful posts Mm -hmm. that are also addressing this. Um, Money and art has been somewhat taboo. And I think you have to be very careful seeking out institutions if you want to become a professional artist that will assist you on that path. I can say for myself, this is part of my classroom environment and we put this as part, as part of our professional practice. So if I see a student wants to be a commission-based artist, I have 
packets of information on like how to do pricing, how to responsibly ask for quotes or um, price your work. If you're going to be a muralist, how do you make that kind of budget? And professional practice to me is ethical. And I've even had critiques where rather than saying what was effective in the work or bad, uh, you know, not functioning, how to make work better, I've had critiques where I'm like, how much? And I try and have the student actually sell me their work and tell me how much it is. I tr and I, we simulate like buying the work. Mm -hmm. And that's, that was fun. And it switches it up because is that, is that where they're going to be making their living? At the same time, monetizing <laughs> art can be very painful. It can be very traumatic. It can be very difficult. So I think it, it's some people are offended by the selling of art or speaking about it. So you just have to see what the student wants. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, I don't know, it's also exciting to try and figure out how to make a living as an artist. Yeah. Are you going to be making prints? Are you going to be putting your work on clothing? Are you going to be um, making work 30 feet tall on the outside of buildings? You, there are just many ways that painting specifically can become part of your livelihood. Mm -hmm. I think the difference about FSU because I went to art school and I was very disappointed in the liberal arts. This is a huge university that has incredible, um, you might be a double major, or, um, study creative writing. We have um, incredible professors that are at the top of their field from every discipline. So you can really interact with the entire scope of all of those types of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, some of our students are dual in neuroscience and art. Oh, that's so cool. So it's, it just gives you more possibilities that way. That's beautiful. Well, we're coming to the end of this conversation. Would you have some final words of wisdom to the people watching this show? Well, um, thank you for watching. Uh, I'm interested in any questions you might have. Feel free to reach out. I... I'm an advocate for creativity and I'm interested in ways to expand consciousness and education. So I'm also looking for reading recommendations. I can also make a list of audiobook suggestions and reading suggestions to you if anybody wants to continue their own education in art. I listen to audiobooks all the time while I paint, so I have a really nice list of great audiobooks that I think are helpful. Mm -hmm. and name name a couple right now uh, some of my favorites are um, a more beautiful question which is that book about asking better um, Question. you know, questions and having, <laughs> having the power of inquiry at hand and then um, mastery by Robert Greene Amanda Sage and I have both read that one and found it was really helpful it dispels the myth of virtuosity that you had to be born with talent and it's about how you cultivate self-discipline I also really enjoy Marina Abramovic's biography she reads that Patti Smith has an amazing biography about becoming Patti Smith and her lover Robert Maplethorpe Oh, um, Ai Weiwei has a new book out called A Thousand Years of Joy and Sorrow. And I didn't realize he was a multi-generational artist. His father was the poet laureate of China and then was ultimately through the re-education period put in a gulag. And so it's the incredible story of um, 
how one perseveres while being completely out of um, sequence with your environment and how you might be the most loved and the most punished artist of your time. It, you know, we are all in the United States, we have such exquisite freedom to make whatever we want. And I hope that that stays. I think part of the journey through my own art and art making is realizing that moral decisions are political decisions and political decisions are moral decisions. And we have to be very careful about how we move forward as a people. We need to vote and we need to be empowered and present in the kind of um, legislation and education. You know, uh, we want the most freedom that we can have in our society and decriminalizing those things that could put people away who are attempting to expand consciousness. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Carrie-Anne. I really appreciate this time with you. And thank you guys, too, for tuning in to another week of Chris Dyer's Creative Friends. Please make sure to like, comment, share, subscribe, all those boring things that you don't want to do. Please do it for me, your friend Chris. We just want to share these beautiful conversations of art and philosophy and life and beauty. And I'll see you next time. Blessings. Thank you. Next episode, my guest will be Josie Dyer. Peru is a paradise not only in geography, but in food. It's one of the first uh, culinary renowned countries in the world. And um, the people, people are good, good. And they have different provinces have different cultures. They have different clothing, their native clothings, and their different hats, and their different music, their different food. You go to Arequipa, you eat rocoto. You go to the north, you eat arroz con pato. You go to the, um, up in the mountains, you eat your yuca with your soups. You go to the jungle, you eat your palm hearts and boar, boar no, jabalí. And um, it, it's extremely interesting. And the people are good. They give. They give. So please make sure to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Big thanks, and see you next episode. Peace.